0: Good morning. Good morning. My name is Shannon Stokes, and I'm a part of the Hello Fall team. Um, and I'd love to welcome each of you here today. Um, a special welcome to you if you're new or visiting. There are connect cards in the seatbacks in front of you. Um, if you take one out, fill it out, and then put it in one of the black boxes on your way out, we would love to know that you were here. We have two Discover Good News classes coming up in November if you have been coming here for a while and would like to make good news your church home this is your next step you can write on your connect card and that'll register you for the class and just let us know which one you would like to come to so as i said hello fall is coming up tonight from 5 to 7 (laughs) p.m we are so excited and as a part of the hello fall team there are nine of us Um, We just wanted to say a huge thank you for you guys. You have come out strong. We have 66 trunks. We have 64 pots of chili. Um, We have 12 members of the Do You Know team. We have countless others of you who have transported lights, who are going to be a part of the parking team, who are going to be a part of the carnival area, setup team, breakdown team. Um, And so we just want to say thank you for participating. It's going to be an awesome night, and we couldn't do it without you. Um, We do need a little help um, after the service. If you can give us 10 or 15 minutes of your time, we're just going to set up a ton of tables and chairs, um, and that would be awesome. Um, Tents, too. So if you can help us with that just for a few minutes, that would make um, the team's lives a lot easier this afternoon. Um, And so next thing coming up is the concert Under the Stars. It's Veterans Day weekend. Brian Futch is going to sing some songs um, about faith, family, country. There will be a gospel presentation, so invite a friend, come sit under the stars, um, bring a chair and a blanket, um, and it's going to be a really great night. So hope that you join us. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray as Strider comes forward. Um, Father, thank you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for um, how good you are I pray over Hello Fall tonight. Um, I pray that you um, will draw people to yourself um, through gospel conversations that the Do You Know team will be having. Um, I pray over safety, um, and I just pray that you would be glorified in this event tonight. Um, I pray over Strider as he speaks, um, that you would give him the words, Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds and souls um, to hear what you have to say um, to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Is it worth it? You ever ask yourself that question? I have asked myself that question a number of times in a number of different contexts. And this year we've been going through First and 2 Timothy, and we're at the point in Paul's letter to Timothy, where if I'm Timothy, I'm asking the question, is it worth it? Travis talked about chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, last week. And in verse 5, Paul writes to Timothy this. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And Timothy is Paul's disciple and has had a front-row seat to Paul's life. And so when Paul writes, verse 5, Timothy understands exactly what Paul means. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Paul had been imprisoned, beaten, whipped, over and over again, shipwrecked. So when he writes, Timothy, you are called to endure suffering, Timothy had a very specific picture of what that looked like. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. If I'm Timothy, I'm asking the question, is it worth it? And Paul, in this point in his letter, writes three verses to tell Timothy, to tell me, to tell us, it is worth it. This morning, we're looking at verses 6, 7, and 8. And if you brought a Bible, I encourage you to read it for yourselves. If not, it'll be up on the screen. 2 Timothy 4, 6, 7, and 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, Will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I don't know what your fi- picture of a first picture of a crown was, but this was mine. It's a little confusing because it's not instantly recognizable because there's ghosts and those kinds of things on this crown, but this is a Burger King crown. And um, I grew up in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Chick-fil-A didn't exist in North Carolina. It was awful. And so my parents, when we, when we thought about going to get something to eat, my dad would often say, let's go get a Whopper from Burger King. And I'd be like, uh, ah, Whopper. But I loved going. I loved going to Burger King because I always got a crown. And I was so excited. Thank you, Robin, for clapping. That's awesome. I was so excited to go get a crown. And I think from my parents' perspective, they were probably excited too because there is just something that is so right when you see a little boy or a little girl wearing a crown. Let me show you what I mean. I've got two friends, so I'm going to ask Killian and Paisley if they'll come up and help me. You guys can come on up. And um, yeah, you can clap for Clap for You just sit right there on those stools for me. Um, how you feeling? You don't know? Yeah, this is going to go great. Killian, you feel good? I love that, man. I love it. Confidence? Okay. Um, can I read, can I read you guys a story? Okay. This is a story by George McDonald, and the title of the story is called The Princess and the Goblin, and I'm going to modify it a little bit because, Killian, you're not a princess, you're a prince. But also, in the beginning of this story, the author starts writing, and the person who's reading the story starts interrupting and asking questions. So it's a little bit like a conversation that goes back and forth to begin the story. Does that make sense? So I'm going to read it, and I just want you to listen to it. The Princess and the Goblin. There was once a little prince and a little princess who, but Mr. Author... Why do you always write about princes and princesses? Because every little boy is a prince, and every little girl is a princess. But you're going to make them vain, full of themselves, if you tell them that. But not if they understand what I mean. Then what do you mean, asks the reader. What do you mean by a prince and a princess? They are the son and daughters of the king. Very well, then, every little girl is a princess, and every little boy is a prince. And there would be no need to say anything about it, except that they are always in danger of forgetting their rank and behaving as if they had grown out of the mud. I have seen little princes and little princesses behave like the children of thieves and lying beggars, And that is why they need to be told that they are princes and princesses. And that's why when I tell a story of this kind, I tell it about a prince and a princess. Then I can say better what I mean because then I can give them every beautiful thing that I want them to have. I want you to know something at your age that if if I could give you a gift and you could remember one thing, and take it to heart at your age and not at not at my age because I'm 41. Here's the one thing that I'd want you to know. In the verses that we just read there are a lot of fights that you can fight. There are a lot of races that you can run. There are a lot of different kinds of crowns that you can chase after. But what we're going to learn today is that there is one fight and one race and one crown worth chasing after because the king is coming. And you have, you will have options in your life. Matter of fact, there's three of them. Some people hear that and they say, that's not true. That story's not real. There is no king and there is no crown. Some people choose to believe that there is a king and there is a crown, but then they live the rest of their lives as if that wasn't true. And then there are others, and this is what I want you to be. There are other people who believe that there is a king, and he offers a crown, and they live their lives in reality that that king is coming back one day. That is what I want you to choose. Can you help me with something? Okay. Here's what I want you to do. You stay there on your seats for right now. But I have a basket of crowns. And I'm gonna put these right here on the stage. You don't have to move yet. Kelly, I have a basket for you. Paisley, I have a basket for you. And you have an opportunity this morning at the end of the service, I'm gonna pray and everybody's gonna close their eyes. And what I want you to do is I want you to get up while I'm praying And I want you to go to the back of the doors in the lobby. And people are going to walk past you. And what I want you to do is I want you to offer them a crown. And when they take one, I want you to tell them one thing. This is what I want you to tell them. The king is coming. Can you say that for me? The king is coming. The king is coming. Because when you get to be my age when you get to be their age (laughs) sometimes sometimes we have trouble believing that we're actually princes and princesses and we don't we don't have a problem believing it for you because when you see a little girl or a little boy wearing a crown it just makes sense But the crown, the crown that we're talking about this morning, can't be earned. The crown that's in those three verses of scripture has to be given. And the king is the one who gives the crown. I'm not the king, and this isn't the crown. But this morning, can I put a crown on your head? Killian, your head's a lot smaller than I imagined. I don't want to mess up that hair. How's that? Okay. So, so tell me this. How do you feel? Good? Good? Yeah. Does it feel, does it feel normal? Does it feel natural to wear a crown? No? No? I think you look the part. I think you look like a prince and a princess because I know that you are sons and daughters of the king. But you have have a great opportunity because when people like me forget that we're princes and princesses, we get mixed up in all kinds of stuff. We forget that there's a king and then he's coming back. And there's actually a grand story that he invites us to. And so you get to play a small part because not only are you princes and princesses, you're also heralds. That's what Mr. Travis talked about next last week. And a herald is somebody who announces something. You know what your announcement is? The king is coming. So you can hop down off those stools and at the end of the service, you have a Huge part to play in the story. Thank y'all for coming up. Take those baskets with you. Yeah, you can take those, those are yours. There you go. You were made, you were made for a grand story. And the story is about a king, and it includes princesses and princes. C.S. Lewis said, you have never met a mere mortal, because everybody is immortal. Everybody is eternal. Everybody is made in the image of God. And this morning, what I want you to do, or what I want to do, is I want to remind you of the grand story that you and I are invited to. Paul understood it. He lived his life in such a way that he he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the king had come once, the king said, I'm coming back, and that this story involves princes and princesses. Which is why he writes in verse 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And what in the world is a drink offering? And why does Paul use that as a metaphor for his life? He says the same thing in another verse, Philippians 2, 17, and I want to read this to you as well. Paul writes, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, Paul, as he writes, is, un- is writing to an audience that understands the history of God and his people and who operates in a culture where sacrifice was a very common part of life. And sometimes, as Americans, we read things and we kind of scratch our heads. I would if I had hair. We read things and we go, what, what does he mean? What does he mean by that? And so let me help you just a little bit. When Paul writes... Philippians 2.17, he talks about two kinds of sacrifice. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. So let's talk about those. The sacrificial offering in the Old Testament was simply the baseline offering that God commanded his people to participate in. And the baseline offering was also called um, an ascension offering. And you'll understand why in just a second. Sometimes it was called the whole burnt offering. And and here's what God required. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to take your hand and I want you to put it, place it on an animal. Could be a goat, sheep, lamb, cow, bird, if you didn't have the money. What I want you to do is I want you to put your hand on that animal as a representation that this animal is you. And then give it to the priest. And the priest is going to slaughter the animal. He's going to drain it of its blood. And that blood will then be sprinkled upon the altar. And then the priest is going to take the animal and is going to actually cut it into pieces. And he's going to lay that on the altar. And then he is going to set the whole thing on fire. And I want you to do this because I want you to understand that I am a holy God and you are sinful, unclean people unworthy to come into my presence. And yet, I have created within you a desire to be in my presence. And so, this is how you are to come before me. In recognition of your sinfulness and unworthiness to be in my presence. So it's a fitting image. Lay your hand on the animal. The animal becomes a representative of you. And it's as if to say, all of me, God, to all of you. All of me, to all of you, oh God. And that sacrifice was to be done over and over and over again as a reminder to God's people that they needed a savior. See, some people, some people think that in the Old Testament, the Jews believed that these sacrifices are what saved them, and that's not true. Because from Genesis chapter 3, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God makes a promise. And that first promise is, I will raise up a son, a king, and he will give his life as a ransom for his people. And so in the Old Testament, Jews put their faith in the Messiah to come. They didn't know his name, but they knew that they needed to be saved, and they understood I can't do this on my own. I need someone else to do it for me. But this sacrificial offering was a continual reminder. Hey, do this regularly so that you confess, so that you see, so that you experience a need for a savior from your sin. And so Paul writes, I am being poured out As a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. When Israel entered the promised land, God gave them additional instructions for that sacrificial offering. Matter of fact, he resided in the promised land in a tent of meeting, and every time on a daily basis, Moses would go into that tent of meeting, and before he did, they would offer a sacrifice. They would take a lamb, they would slaughter it, sprinkle its blood on the altar, cut it into pieces, and burn the whole thing. But before they did, God said, what I want you to do is I want you to bring a grain offering and a drink offering. The things that represents your daily living, your daily sustenance, the things that you are counting on to give you life, I want you to bring those things and I want you to pour them on that offering and so this was the picture that they would offer a drink offering and it was wine this is grape juice but it was wine and the image was don't stop until every last drop is poured out and I want you to do this over and over and over again Because I've created you to come into my presence, but you can't. You need a savior, an intercessor, to save you from your transgressions. This was the picture. And so when Paul writes about a drink offering upon a sacrificial offering, this is the picture that he gives. Why does he do it? Because Paul knew the king. And Paul understood that the same picture of pouring yourself out is the same one that his king had done for him. When we read Isaiah 53, 12, this is what we read. Because he, meaning Jesus, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore... The sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. That Jesus, as John said, there goes the Lamb of God. The unblemished, perfect person. Every Old Testament sacrifice required an unblemished animal. Not a spot, not a piece of dirt. Perfect And Jesus, when John says, look, there goes the Lamb of God, that is what he means, an unblemished, sinless person. And John says, look, there goes the Lamb of God. And all of a sudden, it became very, very clear that the moment had come, that God was providing his son as a sacrifice and as a penalty for sin. And so as Jesus went to the cross... He poured out his soul. And he didn't stop. He gave it all. And when he did, he made a way, a permanent way, that you and I could come back into the presence of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says that Jesus actually became sin for us. And he was crucified for us. Scripture says that because of the things that we've thought and said and done, that what we deserve is death. That These aren't just minor infractions like we want to assume they are. That the biblical definition for sin is a crime against God. And so what do you do? What do you do when you finally understand that you have committed crimes against the king and against the righteous judge and that you can't save yourself? You need a substitute. And on the cross, Jesus is that substitute. Here's how he did it. If you're reading through the New Testament, and I would encourage you to grab a study if you're not, we're going to read this verse of scripture this week. And as we do, what I want you to remember is this picture. This is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. He, meaning Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That Jesus said, I will be the sacrifice, the once and all sacrifice, the perfect, unblemished son of God, lamb of God, who can do something about this problem of sin. And so Jesus gave it all to the very last drop. Not only did he become the sacrificial offering, the lamb on the cross that was killed in our, on our behalf, but he actually lived for 33 years as a drink offering as well. He poured out his life in every way possible so that you and I, sinful as we are, could come before a holy God. And our part, our part in this is to receive it. This crown cannot be earned. This crown has to be bestowed. And so how do we we receive this gift? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to recognize that we need it, that we cannot do anything to save ourselves, that our sinfulness, because of the things that we've said and thought and done, that those are crimes against God and what we deserve is death. And then... Instead of trusting in ourselves, in our own works, we trust in this. That he entered, once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I believe, Jesus, that you gave it all. And that there's nothing that I can do to save myself. And so I am trusting this picture. I am trusting you, Jesus, to save me. And do you know what Jesus invites us to do? He invites us in response to live our lives as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering that he's made. So Paul's going to go on and he's going to talk a lot about, especially in Romans 12... That you and I, our lives are a daily offering to God. That when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit works in us day after day after day as an aroma which rises to God. It is a pleasing aroma. And so Romans 12.1 is going to talk about this is your spiritual act of worship you are a living sacrifice. Paul understood that. He understood the sacrifice in which Jesus had made for him. And he understood the invitation to which Jesus had given him. And Paul's calling was to go to the Gentiles and to pour his life out so that he might in some way be used by God. And that on the day in which the judge returns, the king returns that he, Paul, might be able to present some of these Gentiles as holy and blameless and pure offerings to God. And Paul says that this comes only by faith. We can't earn it. There's nothing that we can do to sacrifice that will make up for our sinfulness. This is a gift. Have you, have you received that gift? won't you receive that gift? Paul understood that there was a grand story unfolding before his very eyes. And he lived his way knowing that that story includes princes and princesses. And then he writes, the time of my departure has come. Travis told us last week that that this is most likely one of the last letters that Paul wrote. And he's sitting in prison. He knows he's going to be executed by the Roman government. And so he writes, my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And what does Paul mean when he writes, I have kept the faith? This is another common theme in which he's writing to Timothy to help him, help him understand. And I think it's really helpful to look at 1 Timothy 6:12 because Paul is going to very clearly define what keeping the faith is, what fighting the good fight is, what running the race is. And he writes, Timothy, you're to fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many. Paul says, There is a fight, and the fight is one of the faith. And what does he he mean by that? Well, Scripture tells us over and over again that the work of God is to believe. So our part is to believe. And that includes includes understanding that I'm sinful, that I need a Savior, and that God has called me to pour my life out as a drink offering. And And let me help you understand. I'm not talking about vocationally either. I'm talking about all of us, no matter what you do to earn money. God has called us to be a drink offering. But that's not all it includes. It starts there. But faith is taking someone at their word. It is counting on what they say. When you have faith in someone, you seek their counsel. When you have faith in someone, You have confidence in the promises that they proclaim. You look for rest in those promises. And that's work because unlike this jar, our jar constantly leaks. And we're continually forgetting, continually forgetting that our part is to rest in what Jesus has done and to believe it. And Paul uses some language, I have kept the faith, and he uses, I have fought the good fight, and I have run the race as pictures to help Timothy understand this is what fighting, excuse me, keeping the faith is going to require. Because a fighter and a runner train, they work hard, they practice, they get injured, they rehab, they sacrifice. But each of them have a prize that they are running for. And so Paul is helping Timothy understand that keeping the faith is like those things. It requires training and practice and hours. You're going to get injured. You're going to suffer. But Timothy, I am writing to let you know that it is worth it there couldn't be anything easier to say, believe. And so why, why does Paul say that, Timothy, that's going to require the same thing that is required from a fighter or wrestler and a runner? Because we know that Jesus promises and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and light. How do we reconcile Paul saying, hey, this is going to require something, and Jesus saying, believing in me is easy and light. Sometimes we assume that when Jesus tells us to do something, we trick ourselves into thinking that we actually have the ability to do it. But there is a part in us our sin nature that wants to resist everything that Jesus tells us is good for us. And we have a tendency to live our lives in a way that says, I don't need anybody's help. And that pride is crippling. What could be easier to say to a person, believe and rest in the promises of God? but we can't do it because of us. And so Paul says that this is work because of your sin nature, because of your tendency to think that you know what's best and to want to be in control and to want to call your own shots. Because that's in you, this is hard. And so... Timothy, I'm calling you to keep the faith. And so Paul is helping him understand, Timothy, I have continued to take Jesus at his word. I have continued to trust what he says. I have continued to seek his counsel. I have continued to believe in his promises. That is what keeping the faith looks like. Sometimes we can hear something like that and go, I don't know how to do it. And the answer is, you're right. I don't know why we have a tendency to approach the Christian life in any way that is different from how we would approach our normal lives. Because you have jobs and hobbies and sports, and none of you would show, well, maybe some of you, would show up to a field and say, I can do everything. Just give me a basketball, get out of my way, and I'm Giannis or LeBron. LeBron or Patrick Mahomes, most of us show up and say, I need to practice. There are things that I don't know how to do. I need a coach. I need people to do this with. I need training. And somehow, somehow we think that the Christian life, that, that God's just going to wave some magic wand and all of a sudden we're going to have all the ability to do all these things. And what I've learned is that that's not true. That as Paul tells Timothy... It's like a fighter. It's like a runner. He is giving him imagery that training and practice and a coach and and teammates are needed. We've worked really hard on a tool, and it's called the map. And this tool is by no means perfect. Matter of fact, it's pretty plain and ordinary because it's just a white notebook, and when you open it up, there's no pictures inside. It's just words on a page. But what we've done is we've tried to create a tool to help people who want to live their life as a drink offering learn, practice, develop, be coached to be able to do that. This is not a book, this is not a workbook that you pick up by yourself. Someone else takes you through the map. And the heart behind it is we start with helping people understand in in real practical terms what it looks like to spend time with Jesus on a consistent basis. What does that look like on a daily basis? How do I do that? How How do I read God's word? We help people develop rhythms of daily and weekly worship. We want to teach people we want to teach people what it looks like, to recognize, remember that the king is coming. And then, once that foundation is established, the second part of the map helps people, in practical, real ways, of how to tell other people that the king is coming. There's a lot of people currently going through the map, and uh, I can tell you a lot of stories. But I want to invite you, I want to invite you to prayerfully consider if you want to live your life as a drink offering poured out upon the sacrificial offering of Christ by faith, I think this can help you. And so if you're interested, what I'd love for you to do is mark that on your card, and to be honest, I don't have a, an amazing plan because if 50 of y'all, mark it on your card, that's going to be amazing, and I'm going to go, okay, what next, Jesus? You'll figure it out. But I want to I invite you to that because we would be foolish to think that we don't need training and practice and a coach and teammates. Um, let me say this, <clears throat> and uh, when I say it, I... I I want to communicate this in the most graceful way that I possibly can. And sometimes that comes out and sometimes it doesn't. But my heart is to communicate this in a, in a, in a graceful way. And some of you, I'm not, I'm not even going to look around the room because I don't want some of you to think, oh, he's saying about this about me because I'm going to make eye contact. And you think I'm looking at you, but really what I'm doing is just kind of scanning the crowd and trying to remember what I'm, say, what I'm saying. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to talk to me. Sometimes there are circumstances in life, you're a mom with a new baby, you've experienced loss, and there is no margin in your life. There are periods periods of time in your life in which that is true. But for the most part, we live our lives with plenty of margin around the things that we're committed to. Here's what I want to say to me, to you. If you don't have time for God's word and God's people in the everyday margins of your life, something has to change. Paul is helping Timothy to understand it is worth it. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then this is how he ends it. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also all who have loved his appearing. Anybody an Ohio State fan in here? Oh, we have some. We didn't have any in the first... Okay, I'm so glad I asked the question. Maybe one of you can give me the answer to this question. Uh, Today, if you watch an NFL football game, um, the offense and the defense on most of those on a televised game, uh, they're going to bring up uh, headshots, and the players are going to introduce themselves. You know, Strider Stokes, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, on and on and on and on. Whenever a person from Ohio State introduces themselves, yeah, Exactly. The Michigan fans know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) They say, and it always makes me laugh, they say, the Ohio State University. As if there's like 14 different Ohio State universities and we've got to determine that this is the real one. I don't know why they say that. Somebody, somebody, somebody. I would love to know the answer to it. But it always makes me laugh. And I read, I read verse 8 as if I'm an Ohio State University player. Let me show you what I mean. Humor me for just a second. Because this is important. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is one crown, one Lord. One righteous judge, one king. And that king has come once, and he's told us, I'm coming back. We have no reason to doubt any of his promises. And so we live our lives in light of that reality. The crown that the king bestows is not one that can be earned. This crown must be given. And this is a crown of righteousness. Matter of fact, when Paul talks about the crown, he talks about a, uh, like a green garland that they would award upon the heads of a winner of a race, a winner of a competition. Those are not cheap on Amazon, and so I bought gold crowns because they were, but that is the picture. This garland, this, garland, this crown of righteousness is what the king, as he sits on his throne and as people walk in front of him, this is the crown that he bestows. And the crown, the crown indicates that you have been declared innocent, that you have been declared not guilty. You cannot earn that crown, that crown only comes by faith. Faith in the one who gave it all as a sacrifice and a penalty for our sinfulness. Scripture talks a lot about two days. Like a lot of times in the Bible, it'll say, two day, do this, two day, believe this, two day, don't let the sun go down. But it also talks about the day, Ohio State. The day. Because the king is coming back. And so Paul says, the king is coming And this crown is laid up for me. And Timothy, when I look back at the events in my life, I am telling you, it is worth it. But then he also says, this crown is not just for me. It's also for those who have loved his appearing. So what does Paul mean? This is the last thing. What does Paul mean when he says, loved his appearing? What Paul means is that not only have we had put our faith and trust in Jesus, but loved his appearing means that we desire him, that we want the king, that while on earth, we want to spend time with that king, that we believed and recognized he came once, and we are looking forward to his coming back. We are looking for his appearing. This crown will be awarded to me on that day and not only to me but to also all who have loved his appearing and so this letter is not just a letter that paul wrote to timothy this is a letter that god writes to me and to you and to us the king is coming he will come back And when he does, he will award crowns of righteousness to those who have believed. And so, Strider, church, live your life as a drink offering in light of the king coming back. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the king. You are the righteous judge. Thank you for pouring out everything, your soul, your life, your blood, so that we could come back into the presence of a holy God. And Jesus, thank you that you give us a new identity. Thank you that you call us princes and princesses because that is what the son and daughter of a king is and so forgive us of the ways in which we have forgotten our identity forgive us of the ways in which we have treated others as mere mortals and not as immortals and jesus help us to live our lives as drink offerings in whatever we're passionate about, if we love surfing, if we love golf, if we love football, in our jobs, in our families, whatever it is that you have called us to, help us to live that life as a drink offering in response to your sacrificial offering. And we pray that Jesus, you would help us to believe that we are living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. And that aroma is constantly lifting to heaven. Help us to live our lives in light of that, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.